Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. If you're using one of the Bibles uh, we've provided, that's on page 857 and 858. If you read through Luke 2 this week, I wonder where you would put a period on the Christmas story. Where does it end? If we're just talking about the birth of Christ, then Jesus is born and wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger by verse 7. So in terms of Christmas carols, we could have away in a manger and silent night with just 1 through 7. But if we want the other Christmas carols, you know, Hark the Herald and God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen, we really have to go further. We need to go through at least verse 20, right? We need to have that reaction to Jesus and the shepherds. And if we were in Matthew's gospel, we'd have to have the wise men. But if you're reading through Luke and you keep going past verse 20, you can make a good case that Simeon and Anna need to be included as well. So when Jesus is eight days old and goes to the temple, uh, or maybe after that, he meets these two people, Simeon and Anna, and they respond to him. And it's clear from the things they say and do that they're like the shepherds as well. They're recognizing the salvation that God has brought in Christ. So as far as I know, Simeon and Anna don't make any Christmas carols, but they've got an important contribution to the Christmas story. But what if we keep going all the way to the end of Luke 2? It's a, not a very Christmassy story at all. It's the story of Jesus getting left behind in Jerusalem when his parents went there when he was age 12. This may have been the inspiration to the Home Alone movies. Right, there's no Christmas carols about Jesus arguing in the temple with the leaders there. But I think Luke intends us to read it with the Christmas story. And one reason is this story shines a spotlight on one of the big questions of Luke 1 and 2. What does it mean for a child to be born who's both the son of Mary and the son of God? What kind of person is Jesus going to be? And this last story shows us that the boy Jesus is not a tender and mild infant of the manger. He's something different. He's something much more strange than that. Something much more confrontational than that. So we need to keep this last part of the Christmas story with the rest of it because it forces us to grapple with the whole Christ, Jesus in all that he is. We need to see that the Jesus who's born to Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem will then confuse them in Jerusalem 12 years later. They won't know what to do with him. The humble Jesus of the manger is the obedient son of God who must be in his father's house, the Lord's temple. He is the reason for rejoicing, and he's the reason so many will be revealed as against God. So this morning we're going to look at this whole of Luke chapter 2, the whole Christ, and ask, how are we responding to him? We'll do that under three descriptions. First, we'll look at Jesus, the humble Savior. Second, Jesus, the opposed Savior. And finally, Jesus, the obedient son. So that's Jesus is the humble savior. Jesus is the opposed savior. And Jesus is the obedient son. 
Let's begin by reading the first part of this story, Luke chapter 2, verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 21. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first, gen- first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen, for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is God's word. So as I said, the birth of Jesus is recorded for us fairly simply, without many extra details. Uh, Verses 1 through 5 get Mary and Joseph down from Nazareth in the north to Bethlehem in the south for the census, where they're to be registered. But the key detail there is that Joseph is of David's line, and he's going to the city of David, And it's very clear that this child to be born will be of the Davidic line. As as Mary was prophesied, he will sit on David's throne. And then in verse 6 and 7, the birth is recorded in a a simple, matter-of-fact way. But there's one detail that Luke wants us to see, that the baby was wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger. This will be repeated two more times. This is the sign that the angels gave to the shepherds of this baby and how they're going to find him. He was laid in a manger, a place where animals would eat. And so with this, the stage is set for the angel's big announcement to the shepherds in verses 10 through 12. Let's read that one more time. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. This is the heart of this first section of the story. The Lord's messengers appears, and the Lord's messenger, these angels, are enveloped in the brilliant glory of God. 
and they declare the good news. A Savior has been born in David's city, and he's laying in a manger. This announcement fulfills everything that was said about the angel, from the angels and by Mary and, and Zechariah in Luke chapter 1. This baby is the son of David. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one in David's line. He's going to inherit the throne and all those promises God made to David. And he's the only son of God who's come to save his people from their sins, the holy son. So he is Christ the Lord, and he will save by bringing forgiveness of sins to God's people. And so in Christ, God's long-awaited salvation has appeared on earth. But the shocking part of the news is that God's salvation has appeared as a baby in a manger, wrapped in swaddling cloths. That's the sign, right, that the angels give. So the, the reason this is so surprising is that God's glorious salvation has not appeared in lightning and thunder and judgment. Right? There's no ten plagues of, of Egypt here, right, that are going to judge the Roman occupiers and the corrupt leaders of the temple. That would be one way for God to visit his people. That's how God visited his people in Egypt in the Exodus. But here, God's visitation comes in the birth of a baby. A baby who's weak and dependent. And a baby who's born in the humblest of conditions. Laid in a, a thing that is used to feed animals. So God the Son was born not in power, but in weakness. We are meant to see that Jesus is the humble Savior. The God who appears in glory to the shepherds, in radiance, with brilliant heavenly hosts, took to himself human flesh in the womb of Mary and was born and laid in a manger. Now this isn't supposed to bring sympathy for poor Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus. It's to show us what kind of Savior we need. We need a Savior to become like us in every way except for sin. We need a Savior who is able and willing to suffer as a man the indignities and pain and cursing of this world. So we need a Savior who will not only lie in a manger wrapped in swaddling cloths, but one who will lie in the tomb, wrapped in grave clothes. The birth of the humble Savior points us to the humiliation he will suffer in death. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became a man so that he could die for sinners. This is the shocking news of the angel's announcement. And it's the good news for those who believe. The God who made us has come to die for our sins. Our judge has come to be our savior, to take the punishment upon himself that we deserve. After the appearance of the angels to the shepherds, the rest of the story is taken up with the shepherd's response. The big headline there is verse 17. They made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. They rejoiced and they told everyone what they had heard and seen. 
We see here that one sign that shows that you believe in the humble Savior is that you want others to hear the good news. You're gripped by it and you rejoice and you tell others that there is a Savior who has taken on flesh to save us. And so the shepherds do what Christians have been doing for 2,000 years. We hear the good news that Christ has been born, a Savior has been born to take away our sins, and we tell everyone about it. In some ways, the Christmas festival, even in a secular culture, is a testimony to the power of this good news and the power of the church's witness that the Savior has been born, this humble Savior in the manger, this one who was born to suffer the humiliation and curse of the cross in the place of sinners. We deserve to be there, but he went there for us. And it's impossible to be proud and to receive this salvation, the salvation of the humble Savior. I mean, to be saved by Christ, you first have to admit that you have rebelled against God, that you deserve judgment for your sins, that God would be right as a righteous judge to, to punish you forever in hell for the ways you've turned away from God. You have to admit that, and you also have to admit you can't save yourself. So the salvation that you need is not some kind of program of, of self-discipline, whereby you, you work your way back to God. That's not the salvation we need. What we need is a Savior, the humble Savior, the man Christ Jesus. And to be saved, you have to repent of your sins and trust in him. Trust that Jesus who was born and died in weakness and humiliation, that when he died, he endured what you deserve. He took your place on the cross. On the cross, the Son of God bled and died to pay for your sin and my sin. So this points a question at our hearts. Am I willing to rest in his saving work? Or am I unwilling to receive the work of the humble Savior. The humility of Jesus calls us to humble ourselves. At the same time, it reveals the greatness of God's love. The Son of God willingly took on flesh and willingly humbled himself in order to die and save us. So we see Jesus as the humble Savior. The text asks us, am I humbly trusting in him? Jesus' humility is truly surprising. How can the glorious God and creator be humble? You know, without Jesus, I think it would be impossible for us to, to give God that attribute of humility. But Jesus shows us that we can call God humble. The, the birth of Christ shows us that. And the shepherds and all who hear, they rejoice in this news of the humble Savior's birth, that there is a Savior and he's a baby born and lying in a manger. But as we come to Simeon's prophecy in this next section, we're told that many will stumble over Jesus. Simeon says that Jesus will be a sign opposed. So the sign of the babe born in a manger is a sign opposed. He will be an opposed Savior. Let's pick up the story in verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. 
Every male who first opens a womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Pardon me, I lost the reading. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer day and night. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. When Simeon greets the baby Jesus at the temple and blesses God, at first his words echo what we've heard from other prophets in these chapters, right? He blesses God for the salvation he's bringing in Christ, And there's also this personal element for Simeon. He's been waiting for this, and the Lord is being personally kind to him and allowing him to die in peace, having seen the Lord's Christ. He says here that this baby baby born will not just be a light for Israel, but for the nations as well. This is good news for all people, as the angels proclaimed. This baby Simeon picks up in his arms represents God's salvation for everyone. But after Simeon blesses God, he turns to the parents and he has a specific message for Mary in verse 34. And then his words take on a a darker tone. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So Simeon speaks here of Many rising and falling because of Jesus. And he says that many will oppose Jesus. The key here for us is to see that the way you respond to Jesus reveals your heart. The way you respond to Jesus reveals your relationship with God. You are either reconciled and at peace with God by faith in Jesus, or if you are opposed to Jesus, if you reject Jesus, if you don't trust in Jesus, you are opposed to God. Throughout these first two chapters of Luke, we've seen God do amazing thing after amazing thing, strange and wonderful things, 
appearing through angels to his people, appearing in the heavens, giving children to those who are barren or to a virgin. And yet we read in Simeon's words that there are many in Israel who will be opposed to God's sign, to God's saving work through Jesus. At Christmas, it's tempting to downplay the way Jesus confronts us. Right? We're tempted to focus on the, the sweet, silent baby in the manger. But the coming of Christ is it's not about that. It's about the Lord, God, bringing salvation to a world that needs it, to a sinful world, a world in which people are opposed to God. So the coming of Jesus forces a decision on each of us to ask, am I trusting in God's Savior or am I opposing him? In this chapter, we see two reasons why people might oppose Jesus. The first is what we've already talked about. Because he's the humble Savior, in our pride, we resist him. Right? We resist the idea that we need saving, that we have sin that deserves condemnation, or that we need anyone to help or serve us. The pride keeps us from trusting in Christ. The second reason that we oppose Jesus is one we're going to look at more, is that he's so righteous. He's perfectly righteous and devoted to God. He is the obedient son. And the presence of a holy one like him makes us uncomfortable. In Jesus, we confront a savior who none of us can control or use to our own ends because he's so devoted to God, his father. How are you responding to Christ? In the passage Lucas read earlier for us, it was clear that King Agrippa was looking for a way to kind of procrastinate his decision. You know, Paul, don't, don't put the pressure on me here. Right? Is that you this morning? Would you rather put off confronting Jesus? Or would you rather just avoid thinking about him altogether? The Christmas story proclaims God's Savior for all people has come. Is he your Savior? There's only two options. Either oppose Christ and remain under God's judgment, dead in your sins, or trust in his work, his work on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. And if you trust in him, you receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. In Christ, we either fall or rise. Which are you doing? In Simeon's message to Mary, when he prophesies that Jesus will reveal the hearts of many, he includes a specific prophecy about Mary, that a sword will pierce through her own soul also. This is, I think, especially relevant in the broader context because throughout the this, this story, verses, chapters 1 and 2, we're repeatedly told how something will happen, something will be said, and Mary will ponder it and treasure it up in her heart. But now, a sword is prophesied that will pierce her heart. Even Jesus' own mother is going to have to grapple with her own expectations of what it means to be the mother of the Son of God. She's going to have to grapple with the strange things Jesus will say and do. And the last story of chapter 2 shows her doing just that. It reveals Jesus to us as the obedient son. 
Let's read beginning in verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and at his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So we're jumping ahead 12 years in Jesus' life. But we're once again back in Jerusalem at the temple, just where we were in the Simeon and Anna story. Now we may wonder how they could have lost Jesus, but that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is what happens when they find him. The interaction between Mary and Jesus is one that will sound familiar to the parents of 12-year-old boys, right? Son, why did you do this? Why have you caused us such distress? But notice that as she's addressing him, it gives her the opportunity, since Mary is speaking, to refer to your father. And how does Jesus respond? Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? As Jesus, Mary is talking about your father Joseph, Jesus is talking about God, his father. He must be in his father's house. He must be about his father's business. We can be sure, because what we know about Jesus, that he never sinned. So he never sinned in disobedience against Mary and Joseph. But it's clear by his actions and his words here that his ultimate allegiance was to God, his Father. Jesus is the perfectly obedient Son. He is completely devoted to doing God's will. And again, I think this is a reason we often stumble over Jesus. We might prefer that sentimental vision of Jesus, right? The, The Jesus of the manger, without the Jesus of the cross. We might prefer a Jesus who's under our control, who does what we expect, who gives us what we want. Or we might be okay with a a good teacher Jesus, or a, a Jesus the good example. Jesus is those things, but he's more than that. The Jesus of Scripture is totally devoted to doing God's will, the Father's will. He came to do all that the Father gave him to do, all that the Father gave him to speak. He spoke. He is the Holy One. The presence of such righteousness and holiness is just too much for us. In the presence of such a righteous man, our own unrighteousness is exposed. 
our self-serving hearts show up in stark relief against Jesus, the perfect Son. When we contemplate Jesus' perfection, we're much like Isaiah was in the temple with a vision of God. We're undone. All we can sense is how, how far short we fall from Jesus, the perfect one, the obedient Son. We can see why Jesus, the, the perfect Son of God, is a sword that pierces through Mary's soul. So later in Luke, when he's teaching and there are crowds all around him, his mother and brothers come to see him. They can't get next to him. And, and someone brings the report and says, your, your mother and brothers are outside. He says this, my mother and my brothers are those who fear the word of, or hear the word of God and do it. What a sword through her soul that must have been. But what a greater sword must it have been when she, she saw her son following the path to Jerusalem, to the cross, becoming a public pariah, bearing the curse of the religious leaders that she probably respected in some ways. She beheld him there on the cross. She had to grapple with the strange things Jesus did because he was following the will of his father. Jesus is not a tame savior. He's the obedient son, humbly devoted to God. And he, the righteous one, confronts us in our sin. But if we have faith in Christ, this, this very righteousness that shows us our sin becomes our hope. Because it's Christ's righteousness that saves us. Because Christ perfectly obeyed God and his law, and because he was obedient even to the point of death, unrighteous sinners like us, by faith in Jesus, can stand before our holy God justified, declared righteous, declared not guilty. For Christians, the righteousness of Christ, the perfect obedience of Christ, is our hope and comfort because we are clothed in it. By faith in Christ, we stand before God clothed in the pure garments of Christ's righteousness. Christ succeeded in all the ways we failed, and that's why we can have life. And it's then as our Savior that he can become our example. By the Holy Spirit, we can obey the Father like him. And so Jesus, the obedient son, confronts us. Is the righteousness of Christ a stumbling block to you? Or is it your hope? Luke chapter 2 shows us the whole Christ. He didn't come to conform to our expectations. He didn't come to do just what we wanted him to do. And yet, he did come to serve us. He came to serve us by perfectly obeying the will of God. And Isaiah says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He came to serve us by laying down his life for us. And so as we look at the Jesus of the Christmas story, the, Luke, uh, the, the Jesus of all of Luke chapter 2, we confront the humble Savior and the obedient Son. In the presence of his holiness, we should tremble because of our own unworthiness. And yet, to poor, trembling sinners like us, there is the proclamation 
of good news, of great joy. A Savior is born. He was born so that he could die for sinners. So the question again, are you opposing this Savior? Are you trusting in his work so that you can have life? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for providing this this time, this Lord's Day morning for us to come together as your people and hear your word, to be encouraged by singing the truth about our Savior to each other and to you. Father, we thank you for Jesus, the perfectly obedient Son and the humble Savior. We pray for your help, Father, to trust in him. I pray especially for those here with us who've never trusted him, who've been putting him off or trying to avoid him. Father, I pray for your convicting work that by the power of the Holy Spirit you will open blind eyes and you will soften hearts. You will grant repentance and faith and life in Christ. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.